Propaganda. Dictionary definition. Google search, number one. Information, especially of a biased or misleading nature, used to promote a political cause or point of view. Wikipedia. Propaganda is communication that is used primarily to influence an audience and further an agenda, which may not be objective and may be presenting facts selectively to encourage a particular synthesis or perception, or using loaded language to produce an emotional rather than a rational response to the information. Today's podcast episode is about White Fragility by Robin D'Angelo. Robin D'Angelo is a boomer who specializes in diversity and inclusion talks. She's a consultant, and her book is Sweeping the Nation. She's becoming quite rich, and I think it's worth analyzing this book with the idea of propaganda in mind. I have not read this book, and I don't intend to, but I've heard a lot about it. I know people that have read it. I've talked about it. I've read criticism of it, and I want to go through an online test today of 20 questions to engage with its ideas and see how much I might agree with them. I'm trying to do this in a healthy, good-natured, and good-faith way. I want to give it the benefit of the doubt, so to speak, and be open to the ideas, but I am skeptical of even the idea of, quote, educating myself, which is a term I've heard a lot when engaging on this topic with people. I'm not sure what educating myself means or implies. I consider myself quite educated historically, culturally, statistically uh, regarding white privilege, white power, white fragility, and issues of race relations in general. And you've heard me do plenty of podcasts on the topic already. But today I'm specifically addressing this book because it's being assigned, not to classrooms per se, but to staff in various workplaces, to faculty at various universities. And I'm suspicious of that. I'm curious what's going on here and what kind of ideas are being peddled by what could be disingenuous grifting, frankly. So this is my bias going in, but I also want to recognize that I'm quite sympathetic to the hopeful aim of this book, which is a more equal and fair society. I would love to see that, and I'm on the side of fighting for justice Wherever we find injustice, I'm happy to side with the fight against it. And this book, need I not remind you, need I not remind you, need I remind you, comes on the heels of the George Floyd death from very early June or late May, I can't remember, which was at least a perceived injustice. And somehow this is our collective response to read this book and I find that strange, but maybe it is helpful. And insofar as this does count as educating and productive toward our goals of a fairer and more equal society, I am happy to jump in and address the ideas full on. So let's get into it. Question one. 
There cannot be such a thing as a non-harmful white identity. Okay, that's an awkward statement that requires unpacking. There cannot be such a thing. Is there such a thing as a non-harmful white identity? Is there such a thing as white identity? Let's start with this. What is white identity? I've been objecting for a while now about this idea of whiteness at all. I don't know where it comes from. I find it quite unhelpful, generally speaking. Uh, I don't like the black-white dichotomy. I am half Asian ancestry, so already I'm very skeptical of anything that tries to categorize me in one of these two camps. It's It's insufficient, and it's not old. It's a new idea. There was no such thing as white identity when the USA was founded. It was founded largely by Anglo-Saxon Protestants, and they were white, but they warred with Catholics. The English and Irish warred with each other. Um, The British and the Germans didn't necessarily get along. So you have plenty of division within whiteness, and obviously within Europe, throughout history, including recent, very recent history, we had divisions in whiteness. And today, we still have major divisions between Russians and Belarusians, Russians and Ukrainians. So this idea of whiteness is very unhelpful. Um, I'm happy, in a way, to describe all white identity as harmful, which would lead me to agree with this question. Because identity politics are harmful, If people choose to identify specifically based on their inborn blood and ethnicity, this is not going to promote the universalist, inclusive human race and global society that I hope we're all interested in achieving. This is going to produce toxic factions and tribalism, which is my number one problem with our current anti-racism movement. It's tribal, guys. It is not universalist. It is not principled upon character and ideas. It's instead buttressed by this intense insistence that your race matters more than anything. Is that how you want to be defined? Do you want to be defined like that? I don't. So I'm happy to kind of agree that any kind of white identity is harmful, just as much as any Asian or black identity is harmful. If that's your number one identity, come on. Don't you want to identify with your interests and your tastes and preferences and your skills and your friendships and your region of the world more than your skin? In any case... I don't think this is what the question is really getting at. I think it's more proposing something like a white nationalism or a white supremacy as an extent of white nationalism and that any sort of identity on whiteness is destructive because of that. I mean, I could easily counter-argue that any black nationalism is destructive because of that. I won't do that here. I don't know if I believe that. Um but I was suspicious of Black Panther as a film based on that idea. Um, White identity can be non-harmful. We do see it in culture constantly. We see the 
buffoonery of white people, the oafishness of the old or the middle-aged white guy who doesn't know how to do this and the wife has to help him, you know, and she rolls her eyes because this guy is so silly. Uh, We see the dorky white guy in plenty of, you know, tropes and comedies like, oh, I'm just a dumb white guy, you know. So we see very much a narrative put forth that whiteness is lame and innocuous. There's nothing harmful about this. This is just some silly white guy, you know, the beta cuck white guy, the please take my job. I don't need it kind of guy. Um, This is being, I mean, this is a trope. Uh, I don't know how big it really is, but I've seen it. So that's a non-harmful white identity right there. So obviously there can be such a thing. Of course, part of that identity that I've described is uh, predicated on this idea of like, oh yeah, white people, we've done so much harm in history, so now it's our turn to be the victim or something. Like, um, There's this acknowledgement like, oh, I'm privileged, therefore subjugate me. I have too much, therefore take it. I am awkwardly... Uh, guilty about my status in life so let me play it way way down so that's a thing um but maybe the question is presuming like if you're playing it down you're doing it because your white identity is harmful inherently i don't agree with that but i'm gonna stay neutral to start this test and with this question because i can definitely appreciate the point of view that identifying specifically with your whiteness, again, whatever that means, is harmful, doesn't help, doesn't help anybody to identify with whiteness. That said, again, I do want to finally um, recognize that there are plenty of white culture things that are not harmful, they're benign. Even the boring white culture, like the, the stuff that makes fun of white people having no culture, like saltine crackers and Wonder Bread and this kind of stuff, or really lame music or something, stealing it all from, you know, all this kind of stuff, no spice in their food. Um, You can call that a non-harmful white identity, but also just like the basic traditions and holidays that we can celebrate that do come from European culture. Winter solstice, for instance, Christmas is basically a European invented holiday. The summer solstice, midsummer. That's kind of a European holiday. Um, Paganism is even basically European, and that would lead Halloween to be European. Um, So there are these kind of things that you could call whiteness if we were trying to. And I've heard racist people like Richard Spencer. I I haven't heard him literally say it. I've heard it attributed to him that he, he justifies white nationalism with a pride in these kind of things. And I can see that as being... Fair enough, you know? I mean, if people are going to celebrate heritage, like, fair enough. White people technically have heritage. They have multiple heritages, which is why the term is so weird. But I can see it as non-harmful, but I can obviously see it as harmful as well. And depending on the paradigm that we're choosing and depending on how we educate ourselves, I can see the argument. So I'm going to stay neutral on this one and move on. Two. White people use norms about individualism and meritocracy to implicitly blame people of color for their lack of prosperity in America. Okay, this is also a very 
complex sentence that needs a lot of unpacking. White people use norms, okay, about individualism and meritocracy, right? Um, individualism and meritocracy are values within the USA. To call them white values is a little unhelpful in my estimation. I think basically every immigrant group that's come to America, and there are very many of them, have shared these values. They've either bought into them or they see them as universally true uh, a priori before they even get here. So this is not clear to me that individualism and meritocracy are norms specifically used by white people. Okay, to implicitly blame people of color for their lack of prosperity. Well, I can just think of off the top of my head plenty of examples of black people using norms of individualism and meritocracy to implicitly blame other black people for their lack of prosperity. I can imagine white people using these norms to implicitly blame other white people. So this is just fundamentally unhelpful to characterize white people specifically using norms to blame others for lack of prosperity. I think if you are talking about a lack of prosperity in America, which is the point, and it's a good topic to really consider because that is what we all can agree is, is bad, this lack of prosperity, if we are looking at that, meritocracy and individualism have to be considered. Maybe not those in those words, but the idea of pulling yourself up by your bootstraps is a very complicated idea that's used pejoratively and awkwardly. But essentially, we are responsible for ourselves. We're also responsible for each other. And this is the blend of complicated politicking that we need to sort out, isn't it? People can be to blame for their actions, no matter their skin color. People can also be forgiven and helped out, regardless of their skin color. Individualism is a factor. Meritocracy, talent and skill, and education, and IQ, these are all factors. So I just fundamentally disagree again with this, this claim. Uh, so I guess I will just disagree. Question three. Living in a white neighborhood reinforces the notion that there is no value in knowing people of color. Huh. Um, okay, first of all, is there a notion that there is no value in knowing people of color? I've never heard of that. I think that I've definitely grown up valuing diversity. It's been championed throughout my life by a lot of different angles and uh, perspectives and I think everybody kind of agrees that uh, it's good to value diversity in in all in various forms if not all forms um, so I've never heard this notion that there is no value in knowing people of color living in a white neighborhood um, okay this idea of a white neighborhood is also a little unclear I know obviously that there have been neighborhoods that have been white insofar as for instance, they were built up and only white people could get a loan to buy them, something like that. There are neighborhoods that are predominantly white if you break things down by demographics. 
uh, I would be more comfortable using the term affluence neighborhood or suburban neighborhood because there's nothing nowadays that actually forbids anybody of any color from moving into this kind of neighborhood. And where I come from, which is a, a decent suburban neighborhood, it's diverse. It might not be the most diverse, but insofar as Sacramento is a certain percentage of various demographics, my neighborhood might have some, you know? Uh, there's nothing forbidding them. Uh, them. <laughs> so when we're talking in terms of race, this will, uh, just a warning, be awkward at times, referring to groups as groups, which sounds offensive. Um, in any case, okay, living in a white neighborhood reinforces the notion that there is no value in knowing people of color. Um, man, I just don't like anything about this question. Living in a neighborhood that's predominantly white is fine. Does it reinforce the notion? Uh, no, it doesn't. I'm going to disagree. White people have a deeply internalized sense of superiority and entitlement that they don't see. Okay. Um, I have to think about this. This is a fair... I don't know if it's a fair question, but it's actually a, a clear question. Maybe an impossible question, but it's at least clear. Do white people have a deeply internalized sense of superiority and entitlement? I don't know. I mean, how do you prove or falsify this claim? Um, I'm going to change this up in order to get some perspective. Let's look at a country like China which is by and large Chinese, but not totally Chinese. Uh, there's actually a genocide happening against the Uyghur people right now because they are not Chinese, um, if you will. The uh, Mongolians of uh, Outer Mongolia near the Mongolian border are not necessarily Han Chinese. Uh, the Tibetan people are not Chinese. So do Chinese people have a deeply internalized sense of superiority and entitlement that they don't see in China? It's possible. It's possible. But to phrase it like that is incredibly problematic to me. I would say that people of the majority have a sense of entitlement to what their country has laid out for them. So in the U.S., for instance, we have, let's say, a fire department. And if there's a fire at my house, I feel entitled to have it put out by the community for the fire department to show up and put out my fire. I feel entitled to that. Do I feel superior to others that might not have that entitlement? Well, I kind of feel superior to a different country in the developing world that doesn't have a built-up infrastructure of a fire department. I feel a bit superior to that in the sense that I live in a society that has a fire department. I feel entitled to some things that are promised to the citizenry. I don't feel specifically entitled to things that are promised to my ethnic group, of which I not I know none of. I don't I'm not aware of any entitlement promised to white people, half white people, Asian people, 
There are no entitlements that I'm aware of that are promised to me. So I disagree. I don't, I mean, deeply internalized. I mean, that that's, that's suggesting that I have it and that it's so deeply internalized within me that I don't see it, right? Um, and even as I introspect, maybe for five minutes as I'm doing now on this idea, I still might not properly understand it. And I reject that claim against me. I feel that that is an un, that's a, that's a foundless, baseless attack to say to presume that something is deep within me that I don't see and that I uh, that it's a problem. Now I'm happy to analyze it further, but for the sake of brevity, let's go to question five. Western media continually pumps out images of white supremacy and white superiority. Hmm. Okay, well, Western media does pump out images continuously, for sure. Uh, we are an, a media-inundated society. Uh, do these images represent white supremacy and white superiority? <sighs> well, I'm not seeing a lot of Nazi propaganda in media, so... In their obvious extremist forms, no. I don't see any KKK advertisements. I don't see anything like bring back segregation. I don't see any celebrations of, you know, lynchings from the 1920s or something. So I definitely don't see anything explicitly like that. Okay, so let's expand the definition of white supremacy. Do I see images of... Um, white people covertly holding power and dominion of land or access to resources or commodities and black people subjugated to servile, you know, servitude kind of roles. Hmm. Not casually. When I see something like that, it's either historic and presented in that kind of context, like a black and white movie, or it's ironic making fun of that kind of, paradigm that's not really existent anymore uh or it's flipped where it's very actively done by media companies to show a black a black person as the uh i wanted to say star but what i meant was uh protagonist and a white person perhaps as the server um i definitely can imagine images like that um, and if I flip it back and obviously go through my catalog in my mind, my library of films and TV that I've seen, obviously there are plenty of examples, most examples of a white family, a white protagonist, the white love interest. Does this represent supremacy or superiority? No, it does not. It represents majority. It represents the common denominator that the majority of the population can identify with. It's as simple as that to me. This doesn't represent a white supremacy. So again, I'm disagreeing. And I'm disagreeing softly with all these because I would be happy to hammer that out further. Um, actually, no, I'm going to disagree fully with this one. I don't ever, I don't think at all that Western media continually pumps out images of white supremacy and white superiority. That is a 
That's a crazy baseless claim. Question six, respect for one's basic rights is a privilege that is only or almost only afforded to white people in America. Respect for one's basic rights is a privilege. I would agree with that. Respect for one's basic rights is a privilege in the sense that rights are made up on paper. We just kind of all agree to them. They're not natural per se, though I do also think that we have a natural inclination to respect one another in order to build bonds and alliances and families and loves. So I do think that respect for one's basic rights is a privilege, so to speak, but I actually think it's afforded to all citizens And when it's infringed upon, it's a gross violation that disgusts us all. That's called injustice. We're living in a moment quite defined by an outrage by injustice. And that's what social justice is about. And it's a very loud movement, which I would say defines the country more so than its enemy, which is a perceived oppressive state or boogeyman of racists i don't see that really anywhere despite uh, aside from the generic oppression that every state has and the generic uh, soft bigotry that every people group has what i see is a country quite bent on overcorrecting perceived oppressions and even over-apologizing for perceived privileges. I have yet to see actual substantive evidence that basic rights are not afforded to non-white people. I don't see that evidence. I'm open-minded to seeing it, and I assumed it when I saw the George Floyd killing and the Rayshard Brooks killing and the Breonna Taylor story and all these, you know, quite horrific Uh, acts of uh, failures of the state, um, you know, injustices. When I see this, my inclination is to think the state has messed up. People have been unduly killed or uh, unfairly persecuted. But I have yet to be convinced that it's true thoroughly through any case, let alone... uh, connecting dots to prove a thorough racist agenda in every case. So this is the kind of claim that I need serious evidence to believe. I'm not going to simply accept that only white people have the privilege of their basic human rights being respected. I'm not convinced by that. I think it's an extremely cynical perspective to take. And I I suggest that if you take that perspective to really study why you think that and to prove it to me and others. Usually a proof involves um, at least three substantive pieces of evidence to support a claim. And a claim like that, which is extreme, um, requires a lot of evidence. That evidence used to be easy to point to, but since the civil rights movement, it's very hard to point to. There's a lot of counter evidence to point to affirmative action, uh, welfare, the spate of cancellations and deplatforming of white people that hold privilege, uh, even with a lack of evidence. So 
prove it otherwise to me, and I will change my mind. But for now, I disagree. 7. White progressives who do not see their own complicity in racism cause more damage to people of color than white conservatives do. Hmm. I'm not sure what more damage means. Um, I'm, I can picture a couple of scenarios here. I think there are perhaps microaggressions, uh, slips of the tongue, failures in etiquette, uh, failure to update your PC lingo. Um, there are minor infractions that white progressives might commit. I see it happening right now during this movement. Uh, white people presumably being allies to black people and doing it awkwardly because they don't feel comfortable around black people, maybe because they lack the experience or they take all this uh, as gospel and bend over backwards to, you know, serve the black community, which I find embarrassing and patronizing. And I think the black community might as well here and there. Um, this might cause more damage. This might cause damage, <laughs> not more. This might cause damage to people of color. That damage is superficial, I would say. I think it's, uh, you know, it causes some awkwardness. It causes some embarrassment. It causes some questioning of like, who do you think you are? Are you presuming to be better than me? Do you presume that I need your help? You know, this kind of stuff. I think that uh, white progressives might be guilty in falling into that kind of trap, if you will, um, that they are actually damaging, you know, I don't know if damage is a fair word, but they're insulting in some way people of color, people presumed to need their help, people presumed to be inferior in some way. White conservatives, what do they do? They might do the same things. I don't know if they do or not. I don't see it happening per se. What I have seen is voter disenfranchisement throughout my life, not just under Trump. I've seen gerrymandering. I've seen, you know, I know obviously about historical segregation. That was presumably uh, committed or um, enacted by conservatives. Now, this is actual damage, you could say. I would, I would call voter disenfranchisement real damage insofar as it works, and I do believe it does here and there. I don't believe that all voter disenfranchisement is equal. For instance, requiring an ID is simple enough. I don't think there's a lot of decent argument against that from a black community that says, hey, you're disenfranchising us by requiring ID. Well, it's not crazy to ask for ID. Um, this kind of stuff. I guess what I will say here is that I again disagree. I don't think that the minor microaggressions of well-intended people do more damage than enacted policies that actually do harm certain blocks of people. So I'll disagree. I mean, to say that, you know, it offends me because it presumes that like hurting my feelings is worse than politically disenfranchising me. 
hurting my feelings is not a crime and it shouldn't be a crime. If you want to say something against my group or if you want to presume that you're better than me in some way, okay, I judge you for doing so, but it's not going to kill me. It's not going to really ruin my life or hurt my life. But if you enact laws like, you know, men of this age can no longer do that. Okay, that hurts me. That I will take exception with. So when laws are enacted against a group, that's worse (laughs) than when people just fumble through life awkwardly and offend each other. The only question remaining is if conservatives do still enact these kind of laws, that's the question. Does Donald Trump's administration do anything overtly racist or even covertly racist? I'm willing to believe that he does i don't i can't name anything but insofar as you know appointing a conservative supreme court justice might hurt black communities i would possibly go along with that insofar as voter disenfranchisement like through the post office right now hurts black communities i would accept that it's tricky because it presumes that all black people should be voting liberal which i don't accept plenty of black people can also be conservative but I'm sticking with this point that actual and active uh, law enforcement against people is worse than microaggressions. And that's how I'm kind of reading the question. And it's presuming that conservatives, white conservatives are the ones behind those kind of institutional discriminations. Question eight. Schools are complicit in oppression because they sort children into unequal places in life. Actually, I think I might agree with this one. Uh, I think it's a bit strongly stated, and I don't appreciate where it's coming from, as you can tell. But I would argue it like this. Schools are part of our system, in quotes. They are part of, you know, they are an institution within our society that we all recognize as a valuable process to becoming mature and educated. Schools are part of that. They do that. Society is oppressive to some degree. Every single society, almost by definition, oppresses our civil liberties to some degree. In the sense that I want to do whatever I want as an individualist, society stops me, right? I can't go killing everybody because society will tell me not to and punish me for doing so. Now, that I can see, logically speaking, as a form of oppression. But I don't think that's how we really use the phrase, is it? I think we use the phrase oppression more like being held down unfairly, more so than other people. Um, I think this is a quality that, I, that most people in this conversation miss. Society is oppressive, guys. We're all oppressed to some degree uh, by virtue of living in a society. And we feel it at the DMV. We feel it, you know, in our tax filings. We feel it at the stop sign. You know, we feel it here and there in hopefully minor ways. Okay, schools sort children. Well, yes, schools do sort children. This is the other aspect of society that we're not quite grasping. Uh, Society is inherently hierarchical. 
Now, I would say that the school system that we currently have is outdated because it's based on the Industrial Revolution model of sorting factory workers, which is most people, uh, and sorting out managers, which is a few people, and that you can distinguish who might be a better manager, whose talents might be best used as a manager. You can distinguish that through school, through testing, through projects, through uh, leadership qualities demonstrated in the school, and through IQ testing like SATs and various other kind of deductive reasoning skills. So sorting is inevitable as well. You know, I mean, a sports team sorts. One person will hold the ball more often than another because of skill. And that is a form of sorting. So the, this question I'm reading again, schools are complicit in, in oppression because they sort children into unequal places in life. I think that is a factually true statement. But I think it's its spirit within the context of white fragility is is unhelpful, or maybe it's helpful. This is tricky. I'm, I mean, obviously, they're trying to get to this idea that white people are sorted into managers and black people are sorted into workers or something like that, maybe. And that could have even been true. And hey, it still might be true. I don't actually know I don't have the statistics in front of me of how true that is. I do know that most people are sorted into a working class. And insofar as black people constitute some degree of people, most of them will be sorted into working class. Uh, But obviously, we have black people in positions of power that have been sorted through schooling into unequal places. (laughs) You know, I mean, it's so easy to point to Barack Obama as evidence against all of this. And somehow I'm supposed to ignore that. But I would say that Barack Obama was sorted through schooling, through very prestigious schooling in higher ed, but also in lower ed. I'm sure he shined as an excellent thinker and human in his classes all the way through grades K through 12 and beyond. And he ended up in a, in a place in life that is unequal to the place in life that most of us are in, right? So it seems evident on its face. So I guess I should just agree instead of trying to talk myself out. I agree with that one. Nine, racism was constructed and created by white people. Okay, um, we have to define racism now. So I'm going to disagree with this. There were slaves before there were white people. There was a subjugated group of people before white people existed. Done. Should I just move on? I mean, that's a really easy. I don't, I can't possibly imagine how that is not true and how anybody could see otherwise. Frankly, I just don't even see the logic of this claim that white people invented racism, it's so blind to history and earth to, to think that, or to ignore the Mongolian empire, to ignore the warring Japanese and Chinese dynasties throughout the centuries, to ignore uh, the Ottoman empire and 
Arab conquest uh, after Islam was founded in around 800. Uh, there's just so much ravaging of other people groups by various people groups with race as a motive of conquest uh, and so much subjugation of others. Uh, Europeans did not invent slavery. Slavery was being practiced for centuries before the Atlantic slave trade was founded. Um, Europeans were even enslaved themselves by the Barbary Coast in Africa. Arabs still practice slavery. Um, there are... <laughs> it's hard to even dignify this with a response in the sense that I mean, I think it's patently racist to say that white people invented slavery. Or sorry, that white people invented racism and that racism wasn't a thing until this idea of whiteness came up. I mean, it's just ridiculous to me. Okay, question 10. Racism is so deeply woven into our society that no white people, or very few, could ever completely escape it in their lifetimes. All right. Um, is racism deeply woven into our society? I would be willing to say yes, depending on how broadly we define racism. Um, you know, I, I, <laughs> I'm trying to educate myself here. So I would maybe be willing to listen to somebody try and convince me of this. If the, and I could imagine the argument going like this. Racism is ingrained. It's ingrained because we value white skin over black skin. We value lighter skin over darker skin. Okay, I could accept that. I see evidence of that. I see evidence of that around the world. I see it even more so in Thailand and India and Mexico and Brazil. It's very much the case that light skin is preferred over darker skin, even within the same race, by the way. It's called colorism. There are skin lightening creams. There are, you know, dating sites where fathers brighten the photographs and the skin of their daughters in order to marry them to the most prestigious bachelor. Okay, racism is deeply woven into our society. Let's take that as an example that I would accept. No white people could ever completely escape it in their lifetimes. Well, why is it now white? just white people? No people could ever escape it in their lifetimes. Okay, that's a big claim. I have no idea. <laughs> uh, I don't know why it would be... What's the point of asserting that? I don't even understand why you would say that. I would... I mean, why not just start with racism is deeply woven into our society? I mean, that's already a big thing to say. But then to also say... So much so that no white people could ever completely escape it in their lifetimes. Whereas what? A Latino person will escape it? I mean, I'm really having a hard time following the logic of these questions. And I feel myself contorting my mind through these mental gymnastics in order to make sense of them. How is that education? I ask you, I'm disagreeing with this comment just because uh, I feel like it's it's so steeped in bias, even though I might accept that society is deeply racist. You know what, I'll go back and stay neutral on this.
I don't know. Like, I have no reason to believe or disbelieve that this kind of racism, whatever it might be, it's not clear, could be completely escaped. I don't know. Question 11. It is impossible to be racist against white people. Well, I know the argument here. The argument is that racism is more than just the prejudice and unequal treatment of another person based on their race. I take that to be what racism is. That's the dictionary definition, and it's served a very useful purpose in society for a long time. Okay, so now the idea is that we're going to add power to this definition, which has been referred to as structural racism or systemic racism because this is um, the power of a society and its institutions to exact oppression or unequal treatment against certain kinds of people. And that's obviously been the case as well. Slavery was more than just racist. It was institutionally racist. It was uh, racism codified into a social system as was segregation. Okay, so the logic here is that it's impossible to be racist against white people because black people don't hold power. Well, that is A, a bad argument, and B, untrue. Black people hold power now in South Africa where white people are getting killed and their land being taken. Is that not racism? Is anti-apartheid or reverse apartheid not still bad? Or if you're correcting the balances of historical power, is it okay? Well then, how do you define history? How do we properly weigh up the score historically? What if Africa held immense dominion over Europe for centuries? Does that make it okay for Europe to pillage Africa? What does this mean? Like, what is the what is the benefit of these mental gymnastics of saying black people can't be racist against white people because black people don't hold power? Uh, black people do hold power. In America, there are plenty of cities run by black mayors with black police forces. Okay? There are places where the black, pe- the black populace is the plurality or the majority. Unfortunately, a lot of that is due to gerrymandering, and obviously a lot of that is because of the history of slavery and segregation. So you have the Black Belt in the South, which runs through the deep south of Mississippi and Alabama, where a lot of black people live, and they constitute a strong minority, a minority that is disenfranchised because of gerrymandering, and you know there is like the black uh, congressperson, right? but it's just one. Whereas without gerrymandering, you might have four, but instead those, um, that black minority has been grouped into one thing. Okay. But, but as bad as that is, the black congressperson does hold power in that, in that, uh, district. And that district is run by black people for black people if you will. Um, But beyond that, I mean, that's a silly example. Major cities like Chicago and Baltimore and Atlanta have been throughout time at various points run up and down the power hierarchy of government 
by black people, all the way up to the president, who was black for eight years. Now, what does it mean to be run by white people or black people? I can see an argument going, well, those are just specific black people that happen to hold these 20 offices or positions of power. Uh, That's not black people as a group because these black people are just, I don't know, white adjacent or sellouts or Uncle Toms or Coons or whatever these stupid ideas are to ignore them as people or as black, which is insane. I mean, I, I don't get that. But in any case... Um, okay, so the system is racist. It's a white system. And then when black people enter the system and participate in the system, then they are racist against themselves. The logic just does not convince me, guys. I'm trying to be educated here. I'm trying to get educated, but maybe I need Robin D'Angelo to sit down with me and explain this. But I am not buying that. Now, if you want to change the definition of racist so that you can't be racist against white people, go ahead, but it does nothing. We still have obvious evidence that other kinds of people that are not, quote, white, treat white people badly. What do you want to call that? I'll use your word. Okay, it's just prejudice now. Or it's payback, whatever. It's not good. It's not good. You can't convince me that it's good if that's what you're trying to do. Question 12. People who, who, people who oppose sensitivity and diversity training are complicit in perpetuating oppression. Oh, how convenient. How convenient for a sensitivity and diversity trainer that if I object to the training, I am complicit in perpetuating oppression. I'm, I'm racist, right? If I do that. Um, you know, I might have talked about this before. I'm not sure, but... This argument that silence equals violence is incredibly unhelpful. I can picture the argument that it is bad to be silent, very bad. And what I, the example I like to think of is Natural Born Killers uh, in that movie, which I found quite formative in my early life. Uh, Juliette Lewis's character is abused by her father quite mercilessly. Rodney Dangerfield plays that guy. And Woody Harrelson saves her from that, which is like kind of like the spark of their, you know, their love story. We see a, a slice of life that she is saved from. And the mother is complicit somehow in her abuse, in the daughter's abuse. The mother doesn't stand up for the daughter. Well, she might, but then she's beaten as well by the tyrannical father. This is a trope that I'm sure has existed throughout time, and it's very bad. I think we all can agree that it's an outrage and that we all stand against it. Okay, how much, how guilty is the woman, the mother, in that story? If she fails to save or stand up for her daughter, how guilty is she? Is she the one doing the abuse? There are stories that are even worse where... The mother will aid and abet the father. Maybe it's not, uh, you know, in that, actually, in the same movie, uh, Woody Harrelson and Juliette Lewis's characters kidnap a victim and hold that victim hostage in their hotel room, and Woody Harrelson abuses her. And Juliette Lewis isn't happy about that. She's jealous and enraged, but she also helps. She aids and abets his crime. 
and at the very least stays silent in freeing the victim. Okay, I can see how one might argue that silence equals violence in this kind of case. For sure. Now, are you telling me that I am equivalent to those women if I object to a training seminar or if I fail to post the the adequate virtue signals, the platitudes and slogans on social media supporting protest movements? If I just live my life and stay quiet, am I as bad as somebody getting beaten and doing nothing about it? No, I'm not. I'm not nearly just as bad, not even close. Now, I can see arguments, you know, I, I can I can cite specific criminal law examples of witnesses being tried for neglect or for failing to act properly the way that most of us would imagine we should if we were watching something heinous happening. Okay, is this that situation? If a black person is getting killed at the hands of police, am I as guilty as the police killer if I say nothing? No. (laughs) I'm not even close to just as guilty. Not even close. Okay, am I complicit in perpetuating oppression? Well, I can see the argument being made. I mean, let's go with something a little less controversial. People who continually eat meat, factory farmed meat from the cattle industry or the farming industry, are complicit in perpetuating violence against animals. I can see the argument for sure there. I'm buying the meat. I'm consuming it. I'm not caring to some degree. Maybe I'm caring to some degree. I'm not caring to a a larger, large enough extent for the well-being of the animal I'm consuming. Am I the one killing the animal? No. Am I the one packaging the animal? No. Am I the one, uh, you know, keeping regulations on the farming industry loose? No. What if I vote against this industry in some way to regulate the safety or regulate the standards of the food quality? Okay, I think I would feel better about eating meat if I did that. So <laughs> there's a lot there. I can keep going. I, I should stop. Let's get through this. Um, no, <laughs> they're not complicit in perpetuating oppression. There's an argument there, but I'm not convinced by it. White people should strive to see things less from their own point of view. Uh, I will agree with this. People should strive to see things less from their own point of view. Or better stated, people should strive to see things from multiple points of view or another point of view. For sure. I strongly agree with that. I don't appreciate white in front of this sentence. I think this should apply to black people and Asian people and poor people and rich people. But it's really important to get perspective in life. Definitely. 14. White people won't listen to those who are less privileged than themselves. (laughs) Since when? What? I don't 
understand this question, um, this assertion. Um, less privileged. Children are less privileged, arguably. Parents listen to them, at least sometimes. Parents are less privileged, arguably, than children. Children listen to them sometimes. Bosses are, or sorry, workers are less privileged than bosses. Bosses listen to the workers, at least sometimes. Um, citizens are less privileged than politicians politicians listen to the citizens at least sometimes so white people won't listen to those who are less privileged again it's building into it that uh white people are more privileged which is a a, uh, an assertion i don't want to readily agree to though i could be convinced um i'm not agreeing with this 15. The very concept of whiteness is built on being anti-black. Huh. Maybe. Maybe it is. I don't know. I mean, I don't think that the Holy Roman Empire had a conception of whiteness. I don't think that the Spanish kingdom had a conception of whiteness. I don't think that the Netherlands had much of a conception of whiteness but when they did get to indonesia maybe they developed one but probably even then they didn't call it whiteness they might have called it you know imperialist or european or something um maybe the concept of whiteness was built upon at least blackness as another i don't know about anti-blackness i don't know though i mean that that's an interesting history lesson of where the term whiteness has come from. I've objected to this term often um, because I think it's weird. So yes, I would happily agree with this if it's true. I don't know if it's true. Um, I would feel more comfortable with this assertion if it said the very concept of whiteness is built on blackness um, as a one or the other kind of dichotomy, which I object to on being anti-black like so but then this is where i'm really skeptical of the question it's implying that whiteness is inherently racist that if you call yourself white you are anti-black and that i will fully disagree i'm partially disagreeing by the way because i do think that whiteness is defined in some sense against an other if that other is blackness so be it anti-blackness is why i'm disagreeing because i don't know why that's forced into that assertion the ultimate responsibility for ending racism lies with white people white people are a minority in the world guys most of the world is not white first of all most of the world is racist to some degree more so than typical white americans are racist so this is confusing if we're focusing on America, if this is an American-centric test and book, is the ultimate responsibility for ending racism that of white people? Um, well, insofar as white people have been holding positions of power, like in the legislature or presidency, pre-Obama, and insofar as actual overt racism, systemic racism, has been ended, which it has in law i suppose white people did that what do you think of that isn't that 
doesn't that sound bad that white people were the ones that, I mean, isn't that the argument like Abraham Lincoln gave slaves their freedom? Ah, the virtuous white savior, right? So which way do you want it? Do you want white people to hold this power and therefore be responsible for ending it? Or do you want to recognize the agency of other people as um, actively changing the world? Martin Luther King Jr. being the best example, in my opinion. Uh, I disagree with this question. I don't know quite what it's getting at. Um, I could hear more. I'm not too keen on reading more about it, though, if I'm honest. 17. To be perceived as an individual and not as a member of one's racial group is a privilege that is only or most almost only afforded to white people. Wrong. It's afforded to everyone. And we've even had to come up with new terms like white adjacent or Indian privilege or Asian privilege because it's obviously not just afforded to white people. And now this anti-racism movement is you know, contorting itself to explain all these other examples of individuality as a prime virtue within a diverse group of citizens. <laughs> Question 18. Claiming that one doesn't see race is itself a form of racism. Well, it depends. I would say no. Um, when someone says that they don't see race, what they mean is that they are very willing and able to judge somebody based on their character and ignore the race. That's what it means to not see race. I have heard quasi-racists or suspected racists like Bill O'Reilly on Fox News say this phrase. And when he says it, I am skeptical. I do wonder if he's saying it as a way of excusing something. Um, but I don't think of him as being racist by virtue of saying that. I'm, I'm, I'm critical of someone like Bill O'Reilly for the rhetorical arguments. And when that shows up as part of their rhetoric, I'm wondering, okay, what are you wanting to say now? What's your next point if you're saying that? Why are you saying it? It's fine to not see race. It's applaudable, in my opinion. It's laudatory. We should all strive to be post-racial and get beyond judging each other by race, guys. Honestly, I mean, what do you what do you propose instead? I really see race because I think race really defines people. That's what you want to say? Good luck with that. Question 19. White people who are not actively speaking out against the current state of race relations are complicit in white supremacy. Well, we kind of covered that, didn't we? Um, I say no. Um, it's just not fair to say that. I mean, I could tell you about an injustice right now that's happening that you weren't even aware of. You know, maybe um, female genital mutilation in Somalia, maybe the killing of dolphins in Japan, maybe you know, the fires burning in California, polluting the air. Okay, you're suddenly aware of an injustice. You're not doing anything about it. Are you complicit? Okay, you didn't know, so you weren't. And now you know. So are you going to change your life? Are you going to change your day in order to fight any one of these problems? I mean, the world is so full of problems. How the hell can any of us be expected 
to address any of them adequately, let alone all of them adequately, and then to further be charged with being immoral for not doing so. I'm deeply offended by that accusation. I am doing what I can to improve race relations in my world, in the communities in which I live. I see beyond race. I see race, obviously. Not obviously, sometimes I just don't know. But I see physical differences, obviously. I don't judge people by them. I don't presume who these people are, whoever I meet, because of their physical appearance. I infer a lot about their personality based on how they present themselves to me. But that goes well beyond the birth characteristics, way beyond. The way someone dresses is way more telling than their skin color. I'm doing that in my life. I'm fighting, quote, white supremacy by inclusivity in everything that I do, all the positions of power. I don't hold power. Um, If I did, I would be colorblind in my hiring. Maybe that's not enough. Maybe I should be affirmatively, actively promoting people of color or minorities. I don't quite believe in quotas and making sure that all minorities are promoted above white people. I think that that is fallacious. Let's move on to the final question of the test, shall we? Black people are oppressed in America. All right, what a nice, clean statement to end on. My answer is no. Black people are not oppressed in America. Any more than everyone is oppressed in America. Now, it is trickier than that. I wouldn't just leave it at that. I can't just leave it at that. There are obvious differences in the country. There are wealth differences that are quite outrageous. There are crime statistics that I find outrageous. There are trends and cultural differences between communities that are interesting, worth studying, maybe worth doing something about. I don't know. I leave it to social science, and I am curious about social science. Um, I have also said that everybody is oppressed in America insofar as America is a society that fundamentally does oppress people to some degree. So I could also take as fact that black people, as a subset of people, are oppressed in America, as an example of an organized society. People are oppressed by organized societies, but they're more often uplifted, benefited, um, offered opportunities to excel, offered peace and prosperity. So yes, we're all oppressed to some degree in America, but we're all afforded good lives even more so than we are oppressed. So let's say we're not oppressed then. Black people constitute Americans. Americans have rights. When those rights are trampled or ignored, there is outrage. We are the collective outrage against those rights supposedly trampled. Black people are entitled to justice through the criminal justice system. Black people are entitled to education through mandatory lower education. Black people are entitled actual government handouts and entitlements. 
through the welfare programs. I don't see where oppression is happening to black people as a group. And there are just so many obvious examples of successful black people that disprove this, that come from disadvantage. It's not like all successful black people were born with silver spoons and just happened to be, you know, the fortunate chosen ones. They were lucky to a large degree. I believe that luck plays a big part in people's success. But I would be willing to bet that this is a statistics I want statistic I want to look up suddenly. There are more middle class black people than there are poor black people. I'm not sure if that's true. I would actually be curious how the black population does break down in terms of wealth and income. I'm not sure about that. What I do know is that all the laws that once held down black people have been removed. And in fact, laws to promote and advance black people have been instituted. So where is the oppression? I'll leave it there. That's my skepticism. Oh, I should hit finish. Let's see what it says. (laughs) Your agreement with white fragility is 22% low. Okay. So it's not zero, guys. I'm definitely willing to um, at least dialogue in this terminology, in this kind of rhetorical space. But I do fundamentally disagree with the rhetoric and the purpose of this. If the purpose is to guilt white people into lambasting themselves for being responsible for racism... I disagree. If the idea is to simply look inward and do this kind of test or read this kind of stuff and think fairly or critically or whatever about it, well, that's fine. But be ready for me to disagree. Be ready for me to push back against this, quote, education. A real education asks to be questioned. A real education demands deeper thought and a real battling with the ideas. Okay, so that's what I'm doing. I'm battling with these ideas. The reason I don't quite think this is education is that it's asserting things that are not patently true. If we can start off with things that are patently true, like Christopher Columbus, uh, sailed to the new world and pillaged it and then we outlined how that happened i can agree and then if we said a genocide was committed against the native peoples there i could agree to that and then if we said laws were enacted to ensure rights only for the new coming europeans i could agree to that and you can get me on board with racism with institutional power structures with all these kind of things, if we go through the facts. But when you then assert that white people as a group are privileged and black people as a group are oppressed, I'm going to need a lot more evidence. A lot more. And I'm also going to need some reasoning for why we're stating this, what our goal is in stating that. What I mean, it just seems so slippery and dangerous to to make these claims. I just wonder, why are you saying this? What is your goal here? 
I mean, it's a power grab, isn't it? You want to take power from one, quote, people group and give it to another? Or you want to take power from a specific person whose job you want? And this is your logic in doing so? This is what I'm suspicious of. And you will justify which actions because of this belief? Because you're now educated, you will justify burning down buildings, looting businesses, invading people's private property, killing people. You can justify that now because black people are oppressed and white people have privilege. I'm not on board with that. I'm not on board with that. I am happy to correct the wrongs that we're seeing. And if we can focus on George Floyd as an example, a good example of a probable injustice. Let's focus on this injustice specifically as a perceived part of a whole and correct the problems. The way that police stand on people's necks, the chokeholds that are obviously bad, the lack of oversight, the toxic behavior within police Uh, departments, this fraternal, look-the-other-way behavior. Let's correct these specific things. If that is what we're worried about, we can address that. And maybe, in doing so, our society will benefit by being more equal. And I think we do want that. I want that. I just don't know if we get to this supposed enlightened equality through Robin D'Angelo's book, white fragility until next time guys ciao don't call me white don't call me white don't call me white don't call me white
Yeah.